Reach Young Adult Ministry Sermons Online from Tuesday, August 4th, 2020 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, from the series Frequently Asked Questions entitled, What Does God's Word Say About the Difference Between Listening to Emotional Needs and Controlling My Emotions? From Jeremiah 17, 5 through 13. There is a stirring so tonight we're going to talk about emotions. So the FAQ for tonight is uh, on our slideshow. What does God's word say about the difference between listening to emotional needs and controlling my emotions? Um, when I was a kid, my dad had a phrase that he would hit me with every time I got upset. And it was, son, control your emotions. Every single time. Um, and he learned it from a high school uh, teacher uh, who was very black and white. And uh, he passed it on to me, me and my brothers and my sisters. Um, and so controlling my emotions has been something that I've been struggling with, trying to figure out for most of my life. Um, we go out of our way in our culture to validate people's feelings. Uh, and feelings are valid. They are. Um, because we'll talk about the, uh, what they lead us to. But it's really important for us to, to see reality through God's Word. Okay? Your, your, uh, your theology is the most basic thing about you. Because how you see God is how you see the world. Because if God is loving, if He is good, if He is righteous, and if He wants the best for you, then that changes how you look at the things that He asks us to do. When He asks to be the Lord of our life, when He asks to be in control, uh, it changes our perspective when we know that the end result of that is going to be for our good. Uh, but if we question who He is, if we question His motives, if He is vengeful, if He is angry, if He is unjust, then all of a sudden I don't want to make Him the Lord of my life. So how do we process our emotions? How do we process them in a biblical way? Turn with me uh, over to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is uh, one of the, the minor prophets. Um, in case you don't know, the difference between the minor prophets and the major prophets is the length of the text. That's all it is. These guys aren't lesser than any of the others, but Jeremiah is right after the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah... Uh, was a he had a hard life he had a very hard life uh, this is the point in in history for the israel na israelite nation to where uh, there was no consensus in belief there was no pursuit of god it was a famine there was a famine of god's word on the land and so jeremiah spent his entire life and never saw revival and he spoke over and over and over again to the point to where he got so frustrated with people that he decided that he was done. And he couldn't take it anymore because he says that the words that God put in his, in his heart were burning inside of him like a fire. So he began to preach again and again and again, calling the people to repentance. And the story of Jeremiah and the corresponding book of Lamentations, uh, they catalog what God told him to tell the people and how they responded. Jeremiah lived a thankless life. He is known as the weeping prophet because he 
never saw any change in people. And so we can, we can listen to his words, we can read what he said, what God inspired through him, because he is a person who felt emotion every day. He felt rejection every day. He felt obscurity every day. And so his words ring true. So join me, join me at Jeremiah chapter 17. We're going to talk about, um, there's two kinds of ways to look at life. Okay, our world tends to uh, define truth and motivations by external factors. Okay, I am the way that I am because of what other people have done to me. Okay, I bear no responsibility because I in and of myself am good. And so if other people have hurt me, it's their fault that I'm this way. It's their fault that I'm angry. It's their fault that I'm hurt. It's their fault that I'm insecure. It's not my fault. But God's Word paints a different picture. Jesus said it's not what goes into a person. It's not the external factors that defiles them. It's what comes out in response. Right? So if someone punches me in the face, say Kevin punches me in the face, um, I have not committed sin until I correspondingly want to hit him in the face. Right? Where I, where I resent him and I begin to be angry at him and I begin to... Um, I begin to fight back. It's not God's will that we have a problem with. It's our response to God's will. Okay, so let's start by looking at what we're really dealing with. We're going to start in verses, verses 5 and 6. Okay, check this out. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 and 6. It says this. It says, This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes, man, he makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. He will be like a juniper in the Arabah. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land where no one lives. First thing I want you to see here is the product of an emotionally driven life. Okay, emotions, I love Pastor Michael. He, he has a saying, emotions make great, uh, make great companions, but they make lousy leaders. Right? So the products of an emotional life, the first thing is that, is that trusting in humanity will bring, us a, will bring a curse. Look at verse 5. It says, This is what the Lord says, Cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns from the Lord. The Hebrew here that says cursed literally means to be cursed or detested by God. So think about this for a second. If you put your trust in people, even yourself... The end result of that is to be detested by God. Now, we live in a generation that is driven by individual truth. Truth is subjective, right? I'm not going to rob you of your truth. You have your truth, I have my truth. You know, you live your life, I'll live my life. But the problem is that that doesn't stand up to Scripture. That doesn't stand up to what God has said. He says that to trust in human beings, to trust in, cre in created man is to make yourself literally cursed or detested by God. In other words, to put your whole trust in what men know and abandon biblical truth is poisonous. Because we know that to be separated from God means that you'll suffocate. Okay, we learn this in James chapter 1, that God is intrinsically good. And that He cannot use evil, He doesn't use evil, He can't be tempted by evil. He is good and pure in His substance. Okay, so that means that, that to be separate from Him is to separate ourselves from goodness. 
if you uh, if you put yourself in a parked car in a garage, okay, pull the garage door down, and you start the car. Eventually, that room is going to fill with carbon monoxide, right? And you will suffocate and die because there is an absence of breathable air. This is an example of what it means to be disconnected from God. Immediately, yes, we may seem like we're okay, but the truth is that we begin to suffocate. A life separate from God is a suffocating life. And until you have reached the end of that road, you realize finally then how difficult and how terrible your decisions were. Because to be separate from God is to separate yourself from everything good. So to trust in mankind and not trust in God means that you choose to suffocate yourself. Okay, when we, when we tr- put our trust in people, we turn away from God. He's saying here that, that those who trust in man's wisdom are cursed because they become advocates against God. Jesus said that a man cannot serve two masters. He will either grow to love one or he will grow to hate the other. You can't serve two people, right? You can't have two lords of your life. And so what that means is that you cannot choose to focus on trusting humanity, trusting people, and not trust God. It's impossible to trust them both. You have to understand that people in and of themselves, based on this scripture right here, are broken. So either we are going to be close to what is good, or we are going to be separate from what is good. And the end result is telling. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 6 about the end result of these choices. Okay, they lead to a dead life. Verse 6, he says, He will be like a juniper in the Arabah, and he cannot see when, when good comes, but dwells in the parched places of the wilderness, in a salt land where, where, no, where nothing lives. So, when I read this Arabah, I automatically thought of Aladdin. I'll be honest with you. I thought it was Agrabah, and I realized it's not. Um, this is an arid region of the Middle East, right? And a... And a uh, a juniper is this little bitty, it looks like an evergreen tree. It's about this tall. And it has really shallow roots. Really shallow roots. And it desperately stretches on the surface of the soil out to try to find moisture. Okay, so what he's saying is that to choose to live and trust in human beings is to be like this little bitty tree. Okay, to be desperately searching out. But he says that he cannot see when good comes. This is a picture of a life that seems alive, but all around it is nothing but dry desert. Okay, there are people, you may be one of them, who you are doing your best to look like you're alive. You have the right clothes, you got the right haircut, you got the right car, you got the right job, you're doing everything that you possibly can to portray life. But the truth is, you're not chasing Jesus. You've been putting your hope and your faith in yourself. You've come up dry. You've realized that, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of faking it. I'm hoping that I'm going to make it. But the truth is that I am dying inside. There's no real life in what I'm doing. The challenge is that on the outside, we look like we're kind of alive. But really, we can't see. We don't have the proper perspective. So to trust in human wisdom means that we live a shallow and empty life. And when we put our trust in, in human wisdom, we can only see part of reality. See, a couple of weeks ago, I preached a sermon about seeing life in color. 
Okay, we, we've been given the opportunity to see life in its fullness, right? So God's Word says that for those who are in Christ Jesus, we have a, we have a special understanding of creation. Because those who aren't in Christ Jesus, all that they see is black and white. They just see the physical world. But for us who are in Christ, we see the spiritual realm as well. And so we see that when, when my brother attacks me, whenever someone does something in hatred, when they do something in anger, when people are driven by lust, we see that there are other forces that are at play. And it's not just us. Right? So we can tell when the enemy is at, when he is doing what he does best, when he's separating people. So what he's, what he's saying here is that to live a shallow life that's driven by focusing on human beings means that we're going to live, live a life that's, that misses the fullness of what God has for us. We have to make a conscious decision to choose to see more than the death or the sin around us. There's a lot of people that are willing to tell us what's wrong with the world. A lot of them. Turn on social media and you will find many, many people who have an opinion about life. But when it comes to actual solutions, there are none. Why? Because they only see part of the picture. They're living in black and white. This happens with believers all the time. People have all kinds of opinions. The problem is that opinions are like noses. Everyone has one, and they all smell. We have to focus on the truth that to be rooted in God's Word, to see things as God intends for us to see them, we have to understand that to trust in human wisdom, to trust in human emotion, to trust in human understanding is limited. But for us who are in Christ Jesus, we have the opportunity to see the world in color. We have, to ch- we have a choice in how we see the world around us. And the truth is that a perspective that is only defined by human motives is a perspective that only sees death. We are, if we are going to live transformed lives, we have to remember that God is the source of all good things. Here's the second thing I want you to see. Is the, is, is if this is the product of an emotionally driven life, look at the product of a godly driven life. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out towards a stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or seeds producing fruit. See, the product of a godly-driven life, in contrast with a person who trusts in man, is the one who trusts in God is full of life. Okay, so there's a contrast here. We say It says that if we focus on manly wisdom, if we focus on human beings, putting our trust in what human beings know and experience is to live a cursed life, separate from the goodness of God. But to live a, a life that is driven by holiness, a life that is driven by godly perspective, is to be blessed. To be cursed or to be blessed is our choice. How are we going to live? But look at this. The Hebrew for blessed here indicates a submission to God's authority and the fullness of the blessing, which is life. Okay, so think about this. If God is good, James chapter 1, if God is truly good, and we, have a, we can make a conscious decision to either live with Him as our, as our measuring stick, or to live with ourselves being the measuring stick, to be separate from Him means to be separate from everything good. But to make a conscious decision to be 
with him and let him be the Lord of our life means that we are connected 100% unfiltered to good. One side has life, one side has death. So to choose to not submit ourselves to his lordship means that we are choosing to live a life of death. It talks about confidence here. In verse 7 it says, The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. Confidence implies that this is a person who roots themselves deeply into God's promises and truth. So we've got a contrast here between the deep-rooted person who puts their trust in God and the shallow-rooted person who puts their trust in human being, in human wisdom. Okay, one of them pretends to be alive, and their roots are shallow. The other desperately reaches for the source of water and has deep roots. What does it say? What does it say in verse 7? It says, The person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence indeed is the Lord, is blessed. Look at verse 8. He will be like a tree planted by water. It sends its roots out towards the stream. It doesn't fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. The challenge with living, trusting in human wisdom is that when trouble comes, there's no fruit. Right? Because we're limited by our perspective. We're limited by our knowledge. We're limited by our understanding. And so what that means is that when trouble comes, we are looking for guidance somewhere. But to be absent from truth is to always be searching for relevance. Okay, We have to understand that if we're truly going to see the world as God sees it, if we truly are going to have confidence in what we're doing, we have to cling ourselves to the truth of God's Word. We have to put down deep roots. If we ignore the truth that we don't have the capacity for goodness apart from God, we will live shallow lives. There are a lot of people right now, there are a lot of peers in your group that are living shallow lives. And the world is going to come and there will be a storm and they're going to get tipped over. I want to challenge you that the day is coming when living a shallow life is not going to be enough. It is going to cost you something to be a person of faith. It is going to cost you something to be someone who is rooted in the truth and rooted in life. And you're not going to be able to do this halfway. Now, you've come a long way. Many of you have grown up in church. Many of you have been around Bible stories, been around God, the community for a long time. But you're still playing games. You're still playing games with God and you're pretending You look like you're alive, but your roots are really shallow. And if you're honest, the truth is that the whole idea of giving Jesus the lordship of your life, total control of your life, is scary. But you're trusting in yourselves. You're not trusting in Him. Because it's hard to trust in Him. It's hard to lay that down. It's hard to lay down those big decisions. Where am I going to go to school? Why do I need to go to school? What am I going to do for a job? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to be moving out of my parents' house? Should I move out of my parents' house? What's my responsibility? You're trusting so hard in what you can do and you're missing it. You're missing that true life comes with submission to Jesus, not submission to yourself. Because let's be honest, none of us are that smart. We're not. I know I'm not that smart. Because God's Word says that if we trust in man's wisdom, it leads to a shallow 
dead life. There are a lot of smart people in hell. We cannot miss this truth that to be separate from God and to be trusting in our own wisdom means that we will live a shallow life. And trust me, I have lived a lot of shallow days. And they, and you know what? I don't remember very many of them. But the deep days are the ones that I remember. The days that I trusted Jesus, that He brought me through trials and struggles. When I had to look at my children and tell them that we were making big life decisions. When I had to lead my wife in a way that was uncomfortable. When I had to lay aside a second career that would have paid me a lot of money and a lot of, and stroked my ego. I am telling you that a shallow life is a forgettable life. It's a dead life. But just like that tree that's planted by the waters, we've got to remember that we're always supposed to pursue Him. We can't expect to live passive and shallow lives while expecting to experience life. It's just not possible. Here's the next thing I want you to see. So if, if an emotionally driven life, if a, if, a, if a life that is driven by human understanding leads to death, and a life that's driven by godly understanding leads to deep roots in life, we've got a problem. How do we navigate this when I want so badly to be in charge? Here's a solution. Here's a solution to our problem. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else, and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to give each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. Let me pause right there. Okay, let me pause right there. Let me explain this a little bit. So in the Old Testament, I want, you need to write this down because this is really important. Okay, In the Old Testament, the, the, in our present day, we think of the mind as the source of intellectual understanding. Okay, Our mind is our thought life. Our heart is the seat of emotion in, 20, in the 21st century. Right? How does it feel in your heart? Right? My heart is hurting. Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart. But in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, it actually was backwards. Okay, the heart is the seat of intellect in the Old Testament. And the seat of emotions was actually where you feel nervous. Your stomach. Specifically, it was your bowels, your intestines. Because when you get nervous, what happens? You get butterflies in your belly, right? And you got you you do. You get nervous. You gotta poop. <laughs> I mean, it just happens. Right? So let's look at this properly in, in context, right? So it talks about the mind and the heart. The mind and the heart, okay? So we've got to look at this specifically because, because if we're not careful, we're going to miss something. Okay, it says, no one, the, verse number nine, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? So if the heart is the center of intellect, what are we talking about? We're talking about our thought life. Your brain does not have the capacity for goodness. This is another deception of our generation is that we believe that people are inherently good. That, well, you know, everybody's basically a good person, so why would God let bad things happen to good people? This directly contradicts that. 
viewpoint of our, of our generation. The heart is more deceitful. You can read that the mind is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? If you don't believe me, I want you to pause and think for a second. When your mind is idle, what do you think about? All the wrong things. Our private life is full of lust. It's full of lies. It's, where, it's full of anger. It's full of resentment. It's full of comparisons. It's full of pride. The mind is desperately wicked. If you don't believe that people are wicked in their mind, deep down inside, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. People are losing their minds. Understatement of the century. People are losing their minds. When, when COVID started to happen, my wife and I went to the grocery store. Okay? We walk into our neighborhood Walmart that's right next to our house. Middle class neighborhood in Jinx, right? There was no eggs. There was no flour. There was no bread. There was no toilet paper. There was no hand soap. There was no meat. There was nothing. There was barely any milk in the fridge. People were getting upset. When people are desperate, when all of their sensitivities go away, we find out what's really under the hood. The truth is that people are corrupted. The heart of man is desperately wicked and no one can know it. It's incurable. No one can understand it. However, look at this next, this next verse. See, God is our designer and our maker. He's the only one that's qualified to diagnose our problem. Look at verse 10. It says, I, the Lord, examine the mind. I test the heart to get each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. Okay, God's telling us here that we cannot understand what we need, but he is willing and able to take care of us. So remember, mind, heart, emotions, right? So let's pick this apart. So it says that the Lord examines the mind. Now, in some modern translations, they do get this right. But, and, and they go into a little bit more nuance here. But what he's saying is that the Lord, He examines the decisions that we're making. He, he, he examines our thought process. And then what? Then He tests the heart. He searches our mind and He tests our emotions. See, here is where emotions play into our lives is that God uses emotions to highlight the sinful nature of our mind. Now, why, would, why does that matter? Because we are so stubborn, it takes, un, it takes discomfort for us to pay attention to what He has to say. God, why am I hurting? Well, if I, if I wasn't hurting, I wouldn't be talking to God, let's be honest. As, as you have processed the issues of your life, as you process hardship, do you go to God more frequently when you're upset and hurting or when you're happy and things are going well? I'm just curious. I'm going to say probably when you're hurting. Because when you're doing well, I mean, why does it matter? Everything's great. But when I'm hurting, that's when I go to God. Why? Because He tests our mind. He goes through and he investigates 
our internal motives, the wickedness of our hearts. And he uses emotions to expose our own weakness. Now remember, that's not what goes into a person, it's not the external motivators that defiles them, it's what comes out, right? So what God does is he allows tension in your life so that you become emotionally aware. Once you're emotionally aware, then you go to him. When you go to him, then he reveals in you ways that you have been rebellious against his lordship. And what he does is he uses that opportunity to pull you in and say, hey, baby girl, I want you to look at this piece right here. Son, I want you to look at this right here. This is important. He's drawing out the sinfulness from you. And he uses it through heat. If you've ever seen a jewelry maker uh, purify fine metals, they do it by putting it in heat. Okay? Scripture uses the analogy of, of collecting dross off of silver. Okay? Dross is the, is, are the impurities within the silver itself. So what they do is they take raw silver that's been, that's been harvested out of the ground, and they put it in a furnace, and they heat it to a massive temperature. So much so that everything melts. And what happens is the pure silver will actually come to the bottom, and it'll separate just like cream on milk. And what the silversmith will do is they'll go in there, and they'll scrape off those impurities... And then, over, and then heat it again and again and again and again until they have pure silver or pure gold. The same thing, the same way is true with us, is that God allows heat, tension, difficulty, challenges in our lives. And then in response, what happens is He goes through when we come to Him and He begins to scrape off all of the crap that's inside. And He does this over and over and over again. Why? Because the heart is more deceitful than anything else, and it's incurable. God uses emotion as a tool. So the, que- the question about, is emotion, how do we deal with emotional cues? How do we deal with, with the challenge of emotion? Or should we just control ourselves? God does not want you to be a robot. He gave you emotions on purpose. So that He can get your freaking attention. That's why. It's because we are proud, arrogant people. And we only pay attention when we're hurting. Emotions are not a bad thing. Emotions are a good thing. But in the same way that he gets our attention through difficulty, he also wants to get our attention through the good things. Psalm 37 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The process of God drawing us to Him and creating emotion in us is something that He uses to bring joy into our lives. Remember, He's teaching us to put deep roots out. God's telling us here that we cannot understand what we need, but He's willing and able to help us and take care of us. We can't take responsibility for... Or Check this out in verse verse 11. He who makes a fortune unjustly is like a partridge that hatches eggs it didn't lay. In the middle of his life, his riches will abandon him, so in the end, he will be a fool. Okay, let me explain this for a second. So he gives this analogy of a bird that goes and sits on on eggs that doesn't belong to that, to the bird, to hatch the bird. Okay, what he's talking about here is the person who, the shallow person with shallow roots that looks like they're being successful. 
Okay, cultural appropriation is a big term in our generation, right? Cultural appropriation is when you take uh, pieces of a culture that doesn't belong to you, and then you objectify it and you you uh, treat it as something to just kind of be played with. Okay, we see this typically around Halloween when people dress up like different cultures. You know, you can't dress up like a Latino because that's racist against Mexicans, or you can't dress up like a Native American because, you know, it's insensitive. What he's talking about here is appropriation of blessing. In other words, this is a person who lives their life and they, they pretend like they hit a triple, but they were born on third base. Okay? They have this illusion of success. And they, the truth is that, look at how it ends up for them. In the middle of his life, his riches will abandon him, so in the end he will be a fool. What he's talking about is there, there will be people who trust in man, but they pretend like they're trusting in God, and they take their physical success, and it's easy to look at them and say, oh yeah, they're, they're miles ahead. I want to do it like them. But he's saying the end result of that life, though, is shallow, and it's empty, and they will, be, they will look foolish at the end. He's using an analogy that says that you cannot pretend that God's blessing you and chase after a, a, a human life. From the outside, it looks like they're incredibly successful. But the truth is that they put their trust in something they have no legitimate claim to. Here's the last thing I want you to see. is the final warning. Look at verses 12 and 13. A glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. This is the Lord talking in verse 12. Jeremiah uh, repeats back, Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be ridden in the dirt. For they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. He talks about in verse 12 how the, from the beginning of time that there's a place of sanctuary. He's talking about God's dwelling place. He's talking about heaven. Okay, And he's, he is legitimizing who, who God is. Now think about this. So, so we can either be shallow and look kind of healthy, or we can choose to put our roots down deep and trust in God's wisdom. What he is saying here is that to be in this camp has been created from the beginning to be the source of life for all of us. But here's what's amazing about this redemption story about the gospel, is that we have claim to this truth, to this Legacy, because of Jesus. He says that the dwelling place, the glorious throne on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Look at what, listen to these words from, uh, from the author of Hebrews who says this about us. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we, have, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. What he's saying here is that this whole battle between trusting our flesh or trusting the flesh of other men, the wisdom of man, and, and trusting in the wisdom of, of God, Jesus lived this life. He says, because Jesus lived this life, that means that we can boldly walk into the throne room of grace. 
Not only do we have access, but we are children of heaven. This is massive. That means that when you pray, Jesus not only hears your prayers, but also he sympathizes with you in every aspect of your struggle. This is a massive truth. He says here in verse 13, uh, he talks about the Lord being the hope of Israel. Now, I'll be honest, this struggle is real because I want to be in control all the time. I really do. But the problem is every time I try to make a decision, I screw up. Really? But here's the truth, though, is that I can look forward to my redemption. I can look forward to tomorrow because I know that Jesus not only sympathizes for me, but he also advocates for me. So he says this about the Lord in verse 13. Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me will be written in the dirt. For they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. He identifies the Lord here as the hope of Israel. He's the only source to make things right. Look at what he says. He says, all who turn away from me, it indicates that those who turn their backs on God offer hope Uh, God's offer of hope and toward the world will only be remembered by what they leave behind. Here's a simple truth. Okay? If you focus on worldly things, you'll have worldly results. If you focus on godly things, you'll have godly results. So what's what's the future for you? You're going to get a job. You're going to make money. You're going to buy a house. Presumably, you're going to have children and get married. Hopefully in a different order. You're going to get married and have children. Okay. But he talks about here the people who live in the flesh, the people who live focusing on only the temporary, the physical parts of life. He talks about them being put to shame and that all who turn away from, from, from God are going to be written in the dirt. Guys, there have been billions of people who have lived their lives and the only thing to show for it are ancient marks. Think about this. Millions of people have lived thousands of years before us and what do we have from their existence? What evidence do we have of their existence? We have small hand paintings on cave walls. We have ruins of cities. We have small pieces of pottery that are buried in the desert that no one even knows is there. And that's the only evidence that a human life touched that place. What I'm telling you is that if you invest yourself in the physical world, and only the physical world, what happens is that you will only bear physical fruit. And it will go away. Because the truth is that, listen to me here, the truth is that in two generations, your great-grandchildren will have no clue who you are. They may bear your name, they may have your DNA, but they will have no concept of who you are. And they won't care about it. Think about that. All the effort that we put into everything that we want, our house, our job, our relationships, all that stuff, only to be forgotten? Are you serious? 
So what are we putting our faith in? Are we putting our faith in our emotions? Are we putting our faith in what we understand, the limits of what human beings can know? Or are we putting our faith in something that is eternal, that is different? God makes things on purpose, and He made your emotions on purpose. It's meant to draw you to Him. There's a saying that I heard a long time ago. You can't feel your way into a new way of acting, but you can act your way into a new way of feeling. Now, it could be that you've been around church, you've been around Jesus, you've been around God stuff most of your life, and this is boring. I get it. I do. It's boring. Because it doesn't seem like things ever ever change. Nothing ever happens. But the only problem is that you are like a lamp that's sitting next to an outlet, not plugged in. And you're like, man, it's so dark around here. Somebody should turn the light on. And you've never actually put your faith into practice. You've been putting so much faith in yourself. You've been fighting tooth and nail to be successful, to try to just make it happen. And the truth is that you're missing it. You can't feel your way into a new way of acting, but you can act your way into a new way of feeling. God's promises are true in this book. I don't say that because it's a theological uh, subject on a paper that I wrote. I know it because I've lived it. I have lived it. And I've seen God do incredible things. And the most incredible thing that He's done in my life is not my jobs, it's not my career, it's not my family. It's that He has taken an arrogant punk like me and He has made me different. So I want to ask you, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your corrupted mind to save you? Or are you trusting in the truth of God's Word and His character? Because your theology is the most basic thing about you. How you see God is how you see the world. Because it it determines every other choice in your life. You have a choice today to decide what you want to do. Do you want to live a shallow, forgettable life? Or do you want to put roots down deep and reach for the living water? Because the gospel is real and it makes a difference. And we can be different. You are not subject to your emotions. You're not. I love the statement that facts don't care about your feelings. Because it doesn't change anything about who God is. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. There are so many people in our generation who are bound up tight and they think that their emotions are the compass of their life. And what they're doing is that they're looking around all the desert surrounding them and they're wondering, why am I not moving forward? It's because they're a little tree with shallow roots 
living in the desert, refusing to put roots down deep. Don't waste your life. God loves you. There is so much more for you than this. What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Bring your glory Revive.